Welcome to a brand new season of the Impact Nations podcast. Today, we are launching season four, The Beatitudes. In this first episode, Steve sets the scene, providing the context of the Sermon on the Mount, helping us see how the Beatitudes can be a roadmap for the church and a means by which we immerse our lives in Christ. Lord, um, I just pray that uh, you would uh, just speak and that you would minister and your spirit would flow um, to everyone who's watching this. I ask for your enabling, your empowering. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight feels a bit odd for me because these uh, podcasts we've been doing the last two and a half years are always in the context of a room full of my friends. And of course, because of the current uh, crisis, um, there's nobody here except my wife, Christina, and I. So I'm going to uh, speak to you, uh, my friends who I can't see, and, and hopefully we'll feel the same kind of connection. Uh, so as I begin to talk about the Beatitudes, first I need to just give kind of a general background to the Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You know, Matthew organized... Jesus teaching into what are called the five discourses and he brought material together a classic example is chapter 13 the parables Um, and uh, this one the Sermon on the Mount is the longest most concentrated teaching in any of the Gospels Um, among uh, Christians perhaps it's the best known section of the Gospels but not necessarily the best understood. In fact, I I really hope that over these coming weeks, uh, we can bring some new understanding. Um, you know, those not even familiar with the Bible uh, know many of the words that are found within this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I'll ask almost anyone and they will have heard of the Lord's Prayer, the expression, turn the other cheek, the golden rule, seek and you shall find, etc., the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, is the core teaching of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And it, it reaches all aspects of life, our values, our priorities, uh, the way we relate to God and our community relationships, everything. Um, for years, I've con- been convinced that those who seek to really, truly follow Jesus a need to return to the, the sermon again and again and again. Sometimes I say it's, it's, uh, it's the Magna Carta for us. Now, there's a lot of different ways that this has been understood, uh, been written about. It's been written about for nearly 2,000 years now with a great range. If I just kind of consolidate those into three or four overviews of, of how it's been understood. Again, that might help us as we start to move into what I hope are some new things. I've been teaching, you know, I'm a pastor. I've taught for decades. And so I've come back to the Sermon on the Mount at different times in my life, uh, several different times to teach. But in the last seven, eight years, as I've shared in the other podcasts, I've been on such a journey uh, Uh, really a Christological journey, a journey into the mystery of Christ, that as I come back this time, 
I'm seeing things that never even occurred to me before. And I, I hope that some of that freshness can come and be an encouragement to you. But let's look at four of the kind of traditional ways. A common reading of the Sermon on the Mount, especially within uh, evangelical Protestantism, is its high ethical demands are meant to show us the impossibility of fulfilling them, the impossibility of being good. Um, this view assumes that the purpose of the sermon is to drive us to Christ, uh, to the grace of God. And so in this way, um, the sermon functions almost like a new law because Paul said that, that it is our teacher and um, our tutor. And so that's how it's seen. And this is the predominant view um, and presentation, certainly within Reformed theology. Secondly, there's, a, there's a, a theologically liberal interpretation that really rose up starting in about the 1870s, uh, and certainly over the last hundred years has grown, that said that the, a sermon gives us guidelines for living that if if we would just embrace them by in our society, it would bring in the millennium. It will bring in society like it was supposed to be. And there was a great hope uh, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, this view was shattered by two world wars. But you will see that as you, as you read some of the literature, that it, it almost surprises us now, this incredible utopian hopefulness that we can just do this and then society would be good. The third uh, of the main views is what's called the dispensational view, and it believes that what Jesus was teaching was something that would only apply in his second coming when he came back. And uh, related to this view, some feel like the sermon presents a, a constitution of what that millennium is going to be like. It's not going to be like this now, but in the thousand-year reign, this is what life will be. In another view, the sermon is understood uh, to be wisdom from God, inviting us through faith to, to reorient our lives, our values, our vision, our habits, and, and to move from external righteousness, and you'll see as you get into the sermon that Jesus talked about that a lot, moving from external righteousness to wholehearted uh, devotion to God. And uh, that this is not law, but gospel. Uh, Jesus is inviting us into life in God's kingdom, both now and in the future age. So, <clears throat> most modern commentators agree that the sermon presents ethics for Christian life, and clearly it does. Uh, for me, though, and we're going to go into the ethical considerations, but for me, the sermon is largely an invitation from Jesus. I've been thinking about this a lot this last week. It's an invitation for us to, to reorder not only our, our values and our visions and our habits, but to center our lives in the very depths of Christ. Um, that the invitation is to move us from externals to an internal life that is wholeheartedly turned toward the triune God. Jesus is inviting us into his life. I've been thinking a lot about that the last couple of days. These beatitudes um, are an invitation into his life. Not so much we need to do this or that, 
but to enter into his life, the life of the kingdom of the heavens. So the Sermon on the Mount is, is not only the, the what of Christian ethics, it's, it's the how and the why that can only come from a revelation of a very different life source. The sermon presents life at multiple levels. And yes, if we embrace it and we're serious, it will impact our actions and our words. But it also invites us to, um, as Paul said, uh, live by the Spirit. Now, again, touching a little bit longer on ethics before we clear the way and start moving forward on the Beatitudes. I think that the, the heart of the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount is that it presents us a Christian counterculture. Not a variation on our culture, but a counterculture. Um, in the last book that I wrote, First Church Restored, I pointed out statistically how much the modern church has failed in being countercultural, statistically, looking at, at every measurement of society, and uh, that we've lost this countercultural life. This is part of why I think more than ever, um, this is a time for us to press in. You know, we're at a time of, of great turmoil. As I'm, as I'm recording this right now, uh, news is coming faster than I've ever seen it. Everything's changing uh, by the hour. Uh, personally, we, we uh, f oh, I don't know, five days ago, as we were still looking at, at uh, some teaching engagements I had in, in the States and, and overseas, that it was had to be 500 people limit. We thought, well, we could work with that. And then it was 250, and then it was 100. And here in my own state, it's now 10. Things are changing so rapidly. And uh, I think that this is... This is an ideal time for us to press into what Jesus had to say in the Sermon on the Mount. From the time of Abraham, Genesis 12, when he called him out and said, I'm going to raise up a people from you. Uh, and from the time of Exodus with Moses, God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself. Um, 1 Peter 2.9, you know, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. That's always been God's purpose. Now, I think the context for understanding the Sermon on the Mount is again Jesus calling out a people for himself. Because just as the sermon begins in Matthew 5, it, what leads up to it in 4.17, Jesus begins to preach. And what's he begin with? Repent, turn around, change, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And this is the context of the sermon. It describes life and community under the kingdom of God. More than anywhere else in the whole New Testament, the sermon sets up a clear contrast between those who are disciples. I don't mean the twelve. I mean those who choose to truly follow Christ and those who are not disciples. It, it delineates more than any other place, I think, in the whole Bible, actually. So with that in mind, it leads us to a question, what will I do with the Sermon on the Mount? 
What will I actually do? You know, it's so much easier. I figured this out as a pastor a long time ago. For most of us, it's easier to believe in who Jesus is than in what he said. So I think maybe as we consider the Beatitudes and the sermon, we should begin with the end in mind. And so the last few verses of chapter 7, Jesus said this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, note that, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. He's giving us a foundation, folks. But everyone who hears these same words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain came and the streams rose and the wind blew, it fell with a great crash. The last thing we need is more theory, more concepts. We need for Christ's word to get deep into our spirit and do its transformational work. So that's a quick contextual background for the Sermon on the Mount. With the rest of this evening, I want to specifically talk about the Beatitudes. If you've got a Bible with you, here they are, starting in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So for the next number of weeks, we're going to be digging down deeply, I hope, into these Beatitudes. The Beatitudes have been called the entire gospel in a grain of salt. Um, if, if, if the Sermon on the Mount is the core teaching of Jesus, then the Beatitudes are the nucleus of that teaching. Now, some people see them, the Beatitudes, as eight facets of discipleship. To others, there are eight uh, aspects of communion with God. Here's a few thoughts to think about as we begin this journey. The Beatitudes pre uh, present us with a paradox. We're going to be confronted tonight and every night with a paradox of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the way that we enter into the age to come now. The Beatitudes are the way our lives become immersed in Christ. They bind us to the mystery of Christ. The Beatitudes are meant to be a roadmap for the church, for all who decide to follow Jesus. The Beatitudes express and reveal the meaning of discipleship. So those are just some thoughts to have in the back of your mind as we carry on tonight. The Beatitudes are the paradox of life in the community of Jesus' followers. The Beatitudes, I believe, counterintuitively, are a call for us to embrace 
paradox. To embrace the things that, that don't seem to make sense. The Beatitudes turn the standards of the world upside down. But when they do that, they point us to a greater reality. They point us to the breaking in of the kingdom of heaven, and they invite us to begin to see and live from a whole other perspective. That's so easy to say, but I hope it will, will unwrap it in the coming weeks. Our perspective is very, very different from God's perspective. Very different, as it were, from heaven's perspective. The Beatitudes point to a new reality that point us to live in a, in a new way, a whole new standard, a new value. And as we do this, the reality of the kingdom begins to increase in us and through us and around us. The Beatitudes call us to live God's future right now. But his future looks different than what we thought. His future, collectively and individually, I think is a great surprise. But they call us to embrace, embrace this future. It's based on very different values than what we are surrounded by. The Beatitudes express the meaning of discipleship. And I I want you to catch something. Because all too often, the Sermon on the Mount has been presented as a new law. I alluded to that quickly earlier. And the Beatitudes express the meaning of discipleship, not the requirements of discipleship. We'll go way deeper into this, but for tonight, it's not if you're poor in spirit, then you'll be blessed. If you're meek, then you'll inherit the earth. Rather, they they release the meaning, but they're not requirements or commandments. One of the things that I've been thinking about an awful lot, especially over the weekend, is how deeply Christological, how deeply Christ-centered and Christ-revealing the Beatitudes are. They take me back to the mystery of Christ. And the Beatitudes invite us to a life immersed in Christ. Because the Beatitudes are who Christ is. They're his biography. Just think about the Beatitudes a little bit in the context of who who our Jesus is. Today's episode is brought to you by Steve's newest book, The Beatitudes for a Time of Crisis. When he first recorded this first episode of The Beatitudes way back in March of 2020, Steve had no idea that the Lord was about to draw him into a journey of remarkable depth. This book is the result of that journey. The teaching that you will receive in this podcast in the coming months only scrapes the surface of what Steve discovered about how the Beatitudes can inform the way we live. The book will serve as a fantastic companion to the podcast. This week I'm actually reading the manuscript as I typeset it for the printers, and I'm loving it. It is challenging and yet also brings great comfort and encouragement. I'll be sending it off to the printer in just a few days, and I'd like to offer you, our podcast listeners, a special deal before anyone else even knows about it. 
We'll be announcing the book on September 9th, but you're getting an early access and chance at an extra copy. If you head to impactnations.com beatitudes, you'll find the book available for pre-order. And if you order a print copy of the book before September 9th, we're going to send you an advanced ebook version of the book right away so that you can start reading it along with the podcast. Then, when your print version arrives, you can give it to your best friend and, and tell them how much it's already blessed you. So don't miss out. Hit pause right now and go to impactnations.com beatitudes to pre-order your copy right away. The ebook will be in your inbox instantly. And now, back to the podcast. Well, let's talk a little bit about the setting. Uh, I've told you before that everything included in any of the four Gospels is there for a very specific and important reason. The Gospels are so carefully constructed. So let's, let's look at how Matthew opens up the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 1 and 2, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. This whole thing of the mountains really, really important. I'm going to challenge us again and again to not think two-dimensionally, but three-dimensionally, at least three-dimensionally. That, that there are multiple things going on at once in the scripture. That there are multiple meanings, all of which are there for us to, to plumb the depths of. So he starts, Matthew begins by saying that he, he went up the mountain. He was writing to a Jewish audience. And from the beginning and throughout, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew draws parallels with Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. There was a promise in Deuteronomy 18.15 that, that God gave through Moses, I'm going to bring you another one like me, and he's going to lead you. Um, in Exodus 24.12, Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets. All through the scripture, Mountains are the place of divine encounter. They are where divine action breaks into human history. Abraham on Mount Moriah in uh, Genesis 22. Uh, Moses, you may not notice, the burning bush was on Mount Horeb. Um, then he encounters the Lord again. In uh, chapter 19, Mount Sinai, of course, the, the mountain where the law was given. Elijah encounters the prophets of Baal and has this incredible encounter on Mount Carmel. Jesus in Matthew 17, Mount Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration. So mountains are really, really key. And I want to ask you to look at this in two ways. <coughs> Excuse me. One, um, of course, Matthew understood the significance of mountains theologically, prophetically, typologically. But Jesus also, of course, understood the significance of mountains, and he understood that his life and ministry 
very specifically were a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, there's a parallel passage in Micah 4, says this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and the people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. Matthew and Jesus, profoundly aware that this was a fulfillment of prophecy as he went up that mountain. You know, when God called Moses up the mountain to bring the law, he told him to come alone. And the people were terrified. In fact, he even warned them. He said, Moses, tell them they better not get too close. They came alone. But this, this is the inauguration of, of a new era of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And instead of just Moses and everybody else being afraid and stay back, here everyone was invited to come. I've got several other passages. Just for time's sake, you can take a note of them if you like. Isaiah 25, 6 and 7 talks about a, a great banquet for all nations on the mountain. Um, Matthew highlights throughout his gospel that Jesus was always aware that he was fulfilling Old Testament scripture and prophecy. So the mountain, the mountain's really important. Now, Jesus sat down. Matthew makes this a key detail. Why did he say he sat down? Why didn't he just have him start teaching? Because Jesus is the new Moses. And sitting down is the position of the teacher in that culture. It expresses authority. And his authority does not come from any human source. It comes from who he is, the second person of the triune God. He sat. It's interesting. The word is uh, in Latin is cathedra. And from that we get cathedral which simply means the bishop's seat or chair. So when you see a cathedral, why is that a church? Why is that a cathedral? Because there the bishop is seated. When teaching was uh, formal but not casual, then the teacher sat down. Matthew is giving us um, uh, what is about to happen. He's giving us this anticipation. This is a big moment, he even says. And he opened his mouth and taught them. This means an authoritative proclamation. So, if you read through all modern translations, they will, if they're good, they'll tie in some of the things I just told you about in terms of Old Testament prophecy. And there's, there's other, other verses too as to what was going on and, and what why this was a fulfillment, and that is completely true. But remember, I'm telling you, we can go deeper and deeper and deeper. It's multi-layered, the meaning. So I want to share a little bit with you with the, uh, the early church fathers, and they had much to say about the Sermon on the Mount. But just in terms of, of beginning to, 
to pull back the cover a little and see how uh, prior to this more modern age, the, the uh, historical critical method of, of scripture being basically fairly two-dimensional, prior to that, uh, they, they perceived, they read and taught scripture very multi-layered and often in a much more contemplative perspective. Um, and this carried on at least for the first eight centuries. In our modern ver- worldview, we have a natural perspective. And so, yes, it may include Old Testament parallels, like I just told you, which nobody would deny. But the ancients were much freer to see layered meanings. So I'm going to give you just a few of them. On this same verse, Jesus went up the mountain and sat down to speak to teach them. Here they are. When Jesus went up the mountain, he was moving toward and inviting others into a higher spiritual life. The mountain signified heavenly commandments to the disciples. On the mountain, Jesus left the earthly and moved into the sublime. So you see, for them, very much the natural reveals and reflects what's going on in the spirit. St. Augustine said this, the mountain points to the gospel's higher righteousness. It was given by God for the Son to set the people free by love. He went up the mountain for two reasons, to fulfill prophecy, um, and his ascent demonstrates the heights of virtue. Let's give you one more key prophecy, and this is a key uh, prophetic fulfillment, Isaiah 49, 40, verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, Shout out loudly, O Jerusalem. Shout, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And they see very much this is the fulfillment of that. Christ is the one who had once, uh, had once handed uh, Moses the law on Mount Sinai, the second person of the Trinity. And we've talked a lot about that. If you're curious as to why I say that, you can look on the podcast series on the mystery of Christ. But now he's handing down a new kind of law to his disciples. The old one, if we're honest, was presented in fear. And the severity of the law was given to Moses on the mountain. As I said, people were forbidden to draw close. But now he invites everyone to draw near. Instead of fear, now there's blessing. The word beatitude comes from blessing, and that's being poured out. So what else can we see in the setting? Who are the audience? Picture. We're told from Matthew that there's people now following him and coming from Syria, from all over Galilee, from Samaria, from Judea. They're coming all over. And so Jesus leaves the low place, and he comes up this mountain uh, in Galilee. The crowds are following him from all over. And, uh, and as he gets to the top, it says he sits down, and his disciples sat around him. That's why he addresses to the disciples, but also to all the people. This is a gospel that invites all, but it's blessing, it's power, is for those who are disciples. 
for those who follow him. Am I clear on that? The nature of this gospel is an invitation for anyone to follow, but the blessings found in it require following. So the disciples, they're pretty interesting. The Beatitudes, as I've said, are paradoxical, but but look at who they describe. The the poor in spirit, the the mourning, the meek, those who are just desperate for justice, for righteousness. Now, these disciples who were sitting around them, every one of them had a personal call from Jesus. And... um, and they responded to that call by renouncing everything. We, we can easily gloss over that. Some of them were successful businessmen. Um, they were various strata of society. But when they responded to the call, they renounced everything. And the reality is, as they sat at his feet... They now live in want. They are now among the very poor. They're often hungry. They're often misunderstood and afflicted. They live with a a great loss of comfort. So they've lost all these things, and that's the way they live their lives. What the disciples have is one thing, Jesus. That's all they've got. So remember that as we go through these Beatitudes. The rejection that Christ suffers will become their rejection. Um, They will live with a profound uncertainty, a day-to-day uncertainty or insecurity in the natural. What are we going to do today? How are we going to eat today? It is the very call of Jesus that made them poor, and rejected, etc. Following Jesus has meant a radical change in the way they live their lives. A radical change. It's not a nice idea. It's not, oh, he loves us so much and we just love being with him. Full stop. But rather, it's this radical, dramatic change. It's a change in their lives. It's a change in their identity. They now live so profoundly counterculturally. I think they could not ever have imagined it when they responded to his invitation to follow. So that's who the disciples are who's listening. It's not church people. It's not this was a great few hours. Now we're going to go back to life. These are the ones who were listening. These are the ones to whom he's speaking. Now, the Beatitudes are called that because they begin with blessed. And so I want to talk about blessing for a few minutes. The word blessing means uh, to be blissful. I've got a terrific translation that says blissful are the poor in spirit. But it also can mean favored. The one word that is in some translations that that is not a good translation is happy. It's just, um, it just doesn't carry the weight and the breadth and the truth of that word. The problem is, as is so often the case with English, there's no single English word that conveys the full meaning 
that uh, is in the Greek. Um, in, a, in the 17th century, uh, as many of you know, the, the King James Version was published, and, and it was there that they picked the word blessed, and it, and it meant something consecrated to God. So let's look just for just a brief little bit on a couple of these words. In the New Testament, the verb uh, eulegio, from which we get eulogy or thanks, means to bless, to praise, to consecrate. Here the word that is used is makarios. And makarios, uh, literally we've translated as blessed. But in the early church, it came to mean something really deep. It, it, it came to mean sharing in the life of God, sharing in the life of God and ultimate joy. There was no higher gift the early church understood than to be blessed. This beati- the Beatitudes is Jesus extending blessing to us. It means to participate in the community of the Trinity. We've used the word perichoresis many times. This this incredible interactive community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Being being blessed means to be invited into to participate in that. It means sharing in God's immortality, sharing in His divine life. I've told the story before that uh, perhaps five or six months ago, I, uh, I was in a village, a Roma village in Bulgaria, and I came around a corner, and there were, uh, I think, 35 people sitting on a wall waiting to be picked up to go pick olives in Greece. And we talked for a few minutes. <coughs> Excuse me. We talked for a few minutes. And I said, uh, can I pray a blessing? And they all went, oh, yes, yes. And I said, a blessing isn't just nice words. It isn't just nice intention. When I bless you, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm pulling on heaven. I'm asking for the reality of heaven to come and touch your life right now. And they, they were very excited with that. In fact, they all gave their lives to Christ. So this word blessing is, is bigger and more powerful. And uh, many scholars see in the, the uh, blesseds uh, as a clear and intentional parallel with the passage that Jesus quoted in Luke in his inaugural sermon. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because uh, he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which, by the way, is Jubilee. Both in the Old Testament and New Testament, Blessing is a rich, rich word, and it is much sought after. It's interesting. When I'm in villages in India especially, but sometimes in Africa, people will just come to me because they see me preaching and ministering or whatever, but they will just come, not Christians, and they will say, please pray a blessing. Sometimes they'll physically take my hand and put it on their head or put it on their child's head. Please pray a blessing. I think it's part of, of the Creator's DNA in all of us, that He longs to bless, and He made us to be blessed. The blesseds of the Beatitudes are not pointed toward the future. They declare, blessed are. 
He's not telling them to hang in there because you'll get blessed later. He said, you're blessed right now. He is declaring to them that in spite of how the world sees them and how it, the world weighs them, evaluates them, they are blessed right now. We'll look more in weeks to come, but there is an important clue here for us tonight. The Beatitudes open a door to the reality of heaven right now. They're not something we earn, but they're an invitation. They enable us to lift up our eyes and see, which is what John 4, Jesus said. Many of the church fathers describe the Beatitudes in a similar way, often as rungs on a ladder. There's even some famous uh, early medieval paintings about, about the saints on the ladder. And they didn't see the Beatitudes on a ladder in terms of goals to be attained so that blessings can become a reward. Rather, as a gracious invitation to step by step, the Lord to draw us up, invite us up and draw us up higher and higher. The order of the Beatitudes, according to the church fathers, and I agree with them, uh, is very important. They are Christ's way for his disciples to move closer to him. I've been reading quite a bit of the early church fathers in preparation for this, but in particular, I had a book recommended to me, um, one of the what's called the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nyssa. He wrote at length on the Beatitudes, and, uh, and he was one of those who saw the Beatitudes as a ladder, and that as we respond to Christ's Spirit, he leads us up higher. Like all of the church fathers, Gregory saw the Scripture in multi-layers. And I believe that we must be really careful as moderns not to see the Beatitudes as a method for becoming better disciples. Because um, I've heard this and I've read this for so many years, and that is not their intent. You know, we're so goal-oriented at this time in our life. Really, really, since the Industrial Revolution, goal orientation has just grown and grown and grown, and now in the technological. Maybe that's part of what God's going to deal with with all of us over the coming weeks, as we cannot go uh, as fast as we're used to, as we cannot set up our, our goals and, and then attain them. So I want to say it again, the Beatitudes are not a method for becoming better disciples. The Beatitudes, in fact, are not something to attain to at all. They're certainly not about knowing more about God. <clears throat> the Beatitudes are about possessing Him within ourselves. John 14, 20, I'm in the Father, you're in me. I'm in you. We spent a lot of time on this in the Mystery of Christ series. If any of you are listening tonight and, and you're not sure what I'm referring to, you can go on the Impact Nations website and you'll see on the homepage podcast, listen now, and, and you can listen to that series. But 
they are not about growing in maturity. They're an invitation to possess him within ourselves. That's why he said, Jesus said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is within you. Gregory saw, and I love this image, he saw the soul of men and women as uh, as being created in the perfect image of God. We would agree with that from Genesis 1 and 2. But he saw that, he used the picture of a mirror, that in our perfect creation, we are a mirror that reflects, reflects him perfectly. But our souls became stained by sin. And so they no longer display his image. They no longer reflect who he really is. So Gregory suggested this, that the Beatitudes are an invitation, a wooing, inviting us to respond to his spirit as he calls us up the ladder. And this journey upward and inward is about the Holy Spirit leading us into the reality of his kingdom. A phrase I love when I'm out doing work overseas is to to tell them Jesus has come to bring you heaven now, the reality of his kingdom, the kingdom of the heavens. But this invitation is also about that, that dusty, messed up, rusty mirror being restored as we, as we pursue him, as we respond to his invitation, our image is being restored to reflect him. We'll, uh, we'll look at the sixth beatitude in several weeks. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. And that word see is a deep, deep, profound word. This is about our intimate union with him. This is the only goal worth living for. This is the only goal worth living for. Union with Christ. (laughs) As we read earlier in Isaiah, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm really excited for this series. And the book that goes with it is fantastic. So don't miss out on your chance to get that advanced copy. Head to impactnations.com slash beatitudes right away because that exclusive deal is just for our podcast listeners and it expires on September 9th. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week. 